the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through James. All of us are tempted to some degree. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God will provide a way out. That's the encouraging part of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So that when you are tempted, God will provide a way out. And that's the challenging part, too. Because if, again, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says that God will provide a way out when we are tempted, then that means if we give in to temptation, we have not taken his exit door. What are your temptations? If you can't come up with a decent list in a short amount of time, chances are you're not being honest with yourself. Thankfully for us, God always provides a way out of temptation when it comes our way. However, as Pastor Gary discusses in his message today, it's up to us to take that path that leads us away from temptation when it comes. In his study, you'll gain a better understanding of temptation and how God, who never tempts anyone, always gives us a way out. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of James chapter 1 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. The writer of the book of James is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, Jesus has uh, four half-brothers mentioned by name in Scripture, and he has sisters, plural, not mentioned by name, but plural means obviously two or more. So there were six, at least six, half-siblings that Jesus had. They all shared the same mother. Jesus, of course, had a different father. His father is God. And so the writer of this particular epistle is James, the half-brother of Jesus, not James the apostle who was martyred uh, in Acts chapter 12. This James, the writer of the epistle by his name, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15. He was called Old Camel Knees because he was constantly on his knees in prayer, developed very ca- uh, calloused knees as a result. Tradition says that he was martyred in AD 62 by being thrown from the temple wall. The date of this book is roughly 50 AD. It is considered to be the earliest of all the New Testament epistles. It predates any of Paul's epistles by at least two years. The recipients of this letter, the original recipients, were Jews scattered throughout Asia Minor, talking most of Europe. And they were believers. They were Jews who were believers in Jesus as the Messiah. And the overall theme of this book is practical Christian living. More specifically, what we're going to look at are these main themes. Trials and temptations. He also talks about faith and deeds, the relationship between faith and works. Remember I mentioned last week that Martin Luther had a problem with this book because Martin Luther 
being a, a monk in the Roman Catholic Church, was finally liberated when he read the book of Romans, that it's not by works are we saved. He realized that it's a matter of grace. You don't have to work your way to heaven. You can't work your way to heaven. And so he left a very performance-oriented religion, comes to faith in Christ, reads the book of James, and calls it the epistle of straw. He didn't even think it should be included in the canon of Scripture because James talks about works. Luther wanted to you know, run from works because works aren't required for salvation. Unfortunately, Luther didn't really understand, I suppose, if he's going to call it the epistle of straw, that what James is talking about is that works don't save you, but works show that you are saved. The way you live your life is a demonstration of your faith or the lack thereof. So there is a relationship between faith and works. James talks about it. He also talks a lot about speech. He's going to devote all of chapter 3 to the whole idea of the tongue. And he talks a little bit about it today if we can get to that part at the end of chapter 1. And then he's, he's got a section on wisdom. We talked a little bit about it last week. He's got more to say on wisdom. And then he also talks about prayer. And he mentions in this whole topic of trials and temptations, category number one, he mentions that it is uh, something that trials happen and, and that they happen particularly for three reasons in our lives, either for maturation, we grow because of it, or for correction, because, you know, we're doing something wrong, and so we face trials because of our own deliberate wrong choices and sinful choices. Uh, and sometimes it's just for direction, where trials come not because of our sinful choices, but God uses trials to kind of redirect us uh, according to his, his plan. And when he talks about trials and and in chapter one, this is where we left off last week, he talks about trials and, and just, you know, how they can affect us. He talks about trials having a progressive nature, uh, that, that testing comes, the trials come, and then it develops in us patience, and then patience causes us to become mature and to become complete. And, and so uh, this, is, this is what he says in verse Two, he says, my, my brethren, my brothers, uh, and a, a term that he uses 15 times in the letter, brothers, you know, sisters, he's talking about fellow believers. He says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing, here's the progression, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. How many of you could use a little more patience? And only three people like raise their hands. <laughs> How many could use a little more patience? You're like, well, I don't have enough patience to raise my hand. Okay, well, <laughs> patience. We need patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect. That's where NIV says mature and complete, not lacking anything, lacking nothing. So that's where we left off at the end of verse uh, 8. But that's the whole theme here of trials in the first section. He talks a little bit about wisdom there also in chapter one is if you lack wisdom, ask for it, but don't be double-minded. Don't, don't ask and then doubt, um, believe and, and receive that God has wisdom for you. So, so in verse nine, he says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. 
so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Now, uh, one of the things I mentioned last week is that James does not necessarily write in a very ordered way. He, he talks about um, the issue of speech, and then he uh, talks about wisdom, and he comes back to speech, and, and he's going to talk about anger, and then he talks about um, wealth, and then he comes back to anger. So he, he doesn't write in a very orderly way. He's just kind of, you know, throwing a lot of um, uh, really what ends up being Proverbs in this letter, and James is compared in the New Testament to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Just very short, very succinct, very pithy kind of uh, uh, truisms. And when he speaks here about the lowly person, the the lowly brother, he's talking about those who are lowly either in comparison to the rich because of their financial status or lowly in the sense of just being in a, in a bad place because of the trials that he was referring to earlier, which either interpretation it is, he ends up talking about the lowly brother being exalted, and then he, and then he switches and he talks about the rich or the, or the guy who is high and how, how he can be humbled sometimes. And he, again, this is, not, this is not, you know, a criticism of being wealthy. The, the idea here is always that material things should not control us or define us. And because his point at the end of this section is just like the flowers fade, just like, uh, you know, th- they're beautiful for a moment and then they perish, just like the grass withers, material stuff is short term and it has no lasting eternal value other than the way that you might use it for the, for the sake of the kingdom to bring glory to God and to advance the gospel. So we're to be good stewards of all that God has given us. Uh, wealth by itself is, is not the problem. It's, it's how we use it or abuse it. And so he talks here about the lowly brother glorying in his exaltation. In other words, basically what he's saying here is as much as it is appropriate for the lowly brother to rejoice when lifted up by God, it is appropriate for the rich to, to rejoice when he's humbled by God. Um, because uh, God wants us to recognize that he is Lord of all and that he is the provider of everything. And we have to be careful with these temporary things that we're entrusted with uh, because they can ruin us if we don't use what God has given us for the glory of God. Now, everything's relative. Uh, we live in Loudoun County, the wealthiest county in the nation. So we need to be particularly mindful that God has entrusted a lot to us, on average, comparatively speaking with the rest of the world. And so we need to be wise about what He's given us, and we need to use it for the glory of God. We are living in, in the most lucrative place in the United States And with that comes responsibility. How are we to use the resources that God has given us? How are we to use the material things that God has entrusted to us for the glory of God and for the betterment of the kingdom of God? And so that's his challenge here. Um, He's not saying the lowly is any better than the rich. He's not saying the rich is any better than the lowly. He's trying to put things in, in perspective for us. And then he goes into verse 12 by saying, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved and IV says when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those 
who love him. Now, underline in your Bibles or highlight them in your electronic Bibles, crown of life. This is uh, the first time that crown of life is mentioned, but crown of life is also mentioned in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. And between those two places, it's the only two places in the Bible where we read about the crown of life. In Revelation 2.10, it's the letter to the church of Smyrna. The Smyrna uh, church was the suffering church. And God was saying that when you persevere and when you endure through your suffering, you're going to receive the crown of life. And James talks about the crown of life here as well. You also read in the Bible, just for you note takers, the mention of the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8. That's another kind of crown, the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4.8. And Peter talks about the crown of glory in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. So between those places, you have here in James the crown of life, also in Revelation 2.10. You have Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.8 about the crown of righteousness. And you have Peter talking about the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5.4. You have these three kinds of crowns that God's people will be rewarded on the day that we stand before him. Now, I don't know which crown you're going to be up for, and maybe all three, but don't get too excited. Because here's what Revelation chapter 4 tells us, that when we're in the presence of the Lamb of God, when he's seated on the throne, we cast all our crowns at his feet. So you might go around saying, well, I can't wait till I get that crown. You're going to have it for like a nanosecond. <laughs> and it isn't that God's going to say, okay, listen, give it up, give it up. It's going to be that. It's going to be that you and I are so overwhelmed in the presence of the majesty and the glory of God that we're going to feel undone and we're going to just be casting our crowns down. He isn't going to ask it of us. We're just going to feel so undone in his presence. We're going to be like, take the crown that you've just given me. So all these crowns are mentioned in the Bible, but none of them end up staying on our head. Okay, nobody's going to be walking. Can you imagine if, it, if they did stay on our head and people would be walking around heaven like, wow, I'm trying to juggle three crowns on my head. What do you have? A one? Oh, sorry. You know, I mean, that isn't going to be happening in heaven. There's not going to be pride like that. So all the crowns go down at Jesus' feet, Revelation chapter 4. So we read about it and we go, wow, how nice would that be? Isn't going to last on your head very long, Burger King. So. We receive these crowns. Verse 13. Now he shifts here from the idea of trials, and he's going to come now into the whole idea of temptations, which is a a form of a trial, but of a different kind. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. Circle that. I am tempted by God. He says, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. All right, so let me summarize here verses 13, 14, and 15. And James is going to make these three points as it relates to temptation. The first is, everyone faces temptation. If you notice there in verse 13, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, not if he or she is tempted, when. Every single one of us has been, is being, will be tempted. 
Okay, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So that's encouraging and challenging all at the same time. Because while he says that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, there's a commonality. We all deal with similar temptations. If we took a moment to go around the room and say, what tempts you? You know, I mean, not that we're going to do that, but, uh, you know, that would be a little vulnerable, wouldn't it? Uh, but if you were to go around and say, this is what tempts me, everybody else would be going, really? That, that tempts me too. Now, there's going to be some things that might tempt you, doesn't tempt the next person, but between all of us, we're going to cover all of them, Okay. All of us are tempted to some degree. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God will provide a way out. That's the encouraging part of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So that when you are tempted, God will provide a way out. And that's the challenging part, too. Because if, again, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says that God will provide a way out when we are tempted, then that means if we give in to temptation we have not taken his exit door. And then we bear responsibility. Now, it's important to note as we're talking about this first point that everyone faces temptation. Temptation itself is not sin. By itself, it's not sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are yet was without sin. In other words, he didn't give in to it. We all face temptation. But then the question becomes, what do you do with it? How how do you deal with it? Do you walk away from it? Do you give in to it? So all of us will be tempted to one degree or another uh, throughout the day because we're still creatures of flesh. Even though you might have a personal relationship with Christ when you get saved, Your spirit is regenerated, but your flesh is not. So we still struggle with fleshly desires, fleshly appetites. And these are the things that we have to constantly be dying to self about. We have to be crucifying the flesh. We have to be taking up our cross, dying to self. And and this is part of what James is talking about here in terms of a life of holiness. You know, wanting to honor God with the way that we live. And so, though we have no choice necessarily on when we face temptation, we do have a choice in how we deal with that temptation. So everyone will be tempted. But notice point number two, God is not the source of temptation. Uh, because he, he, he spells that out there pretty clearly, doesn't it? He, he, he says, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So God's not going to bring some sinful tempting thing along your path, you know, to see what you're made of. You know, there are times that he tests us but not in a tempting way that would cause us to compromise our sin, ever. So that doesn't come from God. Where it comes from is our own desires. That's what he says in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. Now, there are three things that work in concert against us, and I've said this many times over the course of of pastoring here at Cornerstone. Our own flesh, our own sinful desires, the world... Okay, all the stuff that the world promises, and the devil. But all of those are appealing. Those might be the source 
for our temptation, either my flesh or the devil or the world. All of them, though, appeal to my flesh. My flesh appeals to my flesh. The world appeals to my flesh. Satan appeals to my flesh. Remember when Satan tried to tempt Jesus into sinning? Uh, what, did, what did Satan always do? He was trying to tempt Jesus in the flesh in some way. You know, why don't you turn these stones into bread? It's tempting him, him physically, the hunger that he had because Jesus had been fasting. Why don't you, you know, throw yourself off, off of the pinnacle of the temple here? Why, take a look at all the kingdoms of the planet that I can give you. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Those are the entry points Those are the temptation points in our lives. And so God doesn't tempt us. Uh, We have to deal with our own desires. And and we have to rein those things in. And again, crucify the flesh, die to self. But I want you to notice with me the third point is is that temptation is progressive towards death. Because he he talks there almost like it's a, a child that's being conceived He uses this kind of language, verse 15. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, that gives birth to death. That's ultimately uh, what it leads to. So what he says about trials in in the first part of chapter 1, he says in a similar way about temptations here in this part of chapter 1. So let me put back up again the the progress of Trials, it's testing, patience, mature and complete. So that's a good thing that comes out of difficulty. But then he also says temptation is progressive also. It starts with desires. Then, Then we're enticed. So enticement then sets in. Then it leads to sin if we act on the temptation. And then ultimately the end game of leading a sinful life without repentance is death. Separation from God. So this is that progression. Remember, you see this progression. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it in your own life. You know how it unravels. But biblically, you see an example of this with the life of David, don't we? You know, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, the Bible says that David was up on the roof of his palace one night in the, in the springtime when kings go off to war, which is where David should have been. But David had too much idle time on his hands, Right? So he's up on the roof of his palace. He looks across the way, sees Bathsheba bathing. And so it goes like this. The progression goes, he saw, right? He looked at her. He saw. Then he sent. He sent for her. He sent messengers. Go get her. Bring her to me. He saw. He sent. He slept. He slept with her. And then he slaughtered her husband, right? Because he brought Uriah home off the battlefield, encouraged him to sleep with his wife. Why don't you go home? Give you a little R&R. You need a little R&R here. You've been, you've been battle weary. Uriah, this is like the, the bro code, right? He's a warrior. Uriah is, is uh, he's a soldier. He's like, I, I can't enjoy my wife while my brother's in arms or on the field fighting and dying. And so David's like, okay, fine, go back to war. And David sends a note with Uriah to give to the general so that the general would put Uriah on the front lines so that Uriah would die. David's trying to cover up his sin. Oh, 
Pastor Gary Hamrick is bringing us through the book of James in the current series on Cornerstone Connection. The book of James is filled with incredible words to live by, like these. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. These are hard words to practice, but James gives us a reason. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There is nothing more beautiful than a faithful heart, but the path to growing one is filled with hard things. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 4, that when steadfastness has had its full effect, you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So next time you face a trial or hardship, remember these words from James and begin to count it all joy. Cornerstone Connection is a ministry out of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Do you live in the area? Take the next step and come see us in person. We would love to share a Sunday service with you at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 in the morning. We're also here every Wednesday night at 7. When you enter into community, you start to grow in the faith at a faster pace. We'd love to be that community for you. Well, we're out of time for today, but we'll be right here again next time. Come back and see us as we learn how to follow Jesus more closely together on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.